truths upon our hearts. If you'll keep your Bibles out and flip over to 2 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 4. We're going to read now verses 8 through 37. Verses 8 through 37. Again, knowing that only the Lord gives us spiritual ears to hear. Hear now the word of your God. One day Elisha went up on... Onto Shuman, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about the time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, O my head, O my head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and there he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of your servants. And one of your donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither a new moon or a Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she sat out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden from me and has not told me why. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. 
Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up and again and walked around and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Let me invite you to keep those Bibles open. We're going to look over to John chapter 11 here in just a few moments. Well, you notice here something in verses 8 through 17 that needs to be mentioned, but is almost an afterthought of the story. Uh, it's pretty remarkable any time that we come into a text in our Bibles where there is a raising of a dead person back to life. And just as Elijah did, uh, now Elisha, through the power of the Holy Spirit, rises this young boy back to life again and, and gives him back to his mother. And of course, there's lots to be understood and learned from verses 18 through 37. But in verses 8 through 17, you have to know something about Christian hospitality. The whole reason in which Elisha promises the birth of a son for this Shunammite woman is because she has been so hospitable uh, to the prophet and to his servant. You, you notice all throughout these verses 8 through 17 that there is much effort put into by this woman, by her husband, by her family, her household, uh, to bring in Elisha so that he might feel comfortable and so that he might be provided for as he carries out the ministry of the Lord. Not only do you see that she is wealthy, uh, so she encourages Elisha to come and eat some of their food. In fact, it's not just one time, verse 8 says, but every time he passed by their home, he would turn in there and he would eat their food. And so regularly they are fellowshipping together, they are showing hospitality, this husband and wife, to the prophet of God and the servant, and this fellowship continues to grow. Not only is it a regular time of breaking bread together, but now she commands her husband or asks her husband to go and build a room for the prophet so that he might rest and so that he might have a place to work. It, it, it is a little house of sorts where it would be comfortable to him uh, and accessible to him. You see it there in verse 10. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And so there is much hospitality, and that is a Christian command. 
not only to be hospitable to uh, the mouthpieces of God. Of course, in the Old Testament, it would be prophets. In the New Testament, it would be ministers. But also to one another. And, and what is implied here in our text as we move from verse 10, where this small addition to their house is built, showing us really the, the sacrifice of even a wealthy woman to, to provide uh, a comfortable place for the prophet to stay. In verses 11 through 17, you notice that there are blessings of the Lord to be enjoyed for being hospitable to one another. You see Elisha asking the, the wealthy woman here, uh, did, she, did he need the prophet to speak you know, on her behalf to the commander of the army or to the king? Now this shows you something of the woman. Not only is she wealthy, but she's probably very prestigious within the community, probably through marriage to her elderly husband. And she goes, no, I'm, I'm dwelling here amongst my own people. And so he asked Gehazi, his servant, well, what are we to do for her? What can we do for her to give back a thanksgiving for her hospitality? And Gehazi, of course, answers there in verse 14. Well, she has no son, and her husband is beyond baby-making years. He is old. And so Elisha calls this Shunammite woman to her, and he prophesies over her, that in a year's time she will have a son. And you notice something of her unbelief here in her response. We think that this woman, by her intention to be very hospitable to the prophet of God, that she is a believing woman, but she is seeing or hearing a prophecy that seems beyond the pale of her faith. She says, oh, do not lie to me. Do not lie to me, your servant, O Lord, O man of God. And she knows the, all the, the human, earthly reasons in which she uh, could not get pregnant. My husband is old. He's beyond years to produce for me a child. But then you notice how her lack of faith is shown to her by the promises of God being experienced there in verse 17. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, just as Elisha has said to her. And there's something remarkable that happens here between verse 16 and verse 17 and verse 18. In verse 16, there's this prophecy. And then at the end of verse 16, there's this lack of faith. There's an accomplishment of God's sovereign decree that she will bear a son, and she has a son. And then in verse 18, when this son is about six or seven years old, maybe even eight years old, but eight years old at the max, this child is growing, and the woman's faith is also growing. So much so that when her son, this six to eight-year-old son, who is working with his father, watching the reapers of the fields as he has something, as most commentators and scholars say, something of a stroke or an aneurysm. As he experiences this fatal medical emergency, the woman has a faith that is well prepared for this hard circumstance. That's the first thing that I want you to see in verses 18 through 21. That by faith, she has a preparation. 
for hard circumstances. By faith, she has a preparation for hard circumstances. Now, I I wish that I could get on on a little tangent here regarding how this six to eight year old son is in the fields working with his father. It's good for sons to do such a thing, to understand the accomplishment of hard work, to understand his role as a man, to provide for his future family uh, by hard work, to see the fruitfulness of hard work. You see a father here who is still working, even though he is elderly, still has servants or reapers that are working under him. He is a prestigious man in and of himself, and he has worked hard to get there is what the implication is. And the father is instilling in his young son these same values, and that is to be uh, commended. But it's here in the field that he begins to scream out with pain in his head. And so the father says immediately to his servant there at the end of verse 19, you get him to his mother. And the extreme medical emergency is not sudden, even though it is surprising here in the middle of the field, but it's not suddenly detrimental to the life of the child, but he sits in his mother's lap until noon where there he dies. It's a really a, a grim story at this point. If, if we were to end our time in this text at verse 20, we would leave very, uh, very compassionate, Because here is a mother, a father, who has experienced death in a child, but also very somber, wouldn't we? Uh, Because we we know something of the devastation of of hard circumstances or or hard providences. Here in our text, it's the death of a loved one. It's even more, even more soberingly, a death of a child. Uh, and, and we understand the, the weight of that somewhat. Um, and, and yet you could fill in the blank here for hard circumstances, uh, even beyond death. But here in our text is death. We find a very difficult providence. Uh, we find a very difficult ordering of, of God's will. And it, it comes out of the blue. And yet it also seems to extend through, through all the morning. It's a, a devastating season in the life of this mother and this father. And the first thing that you have to understand is that we as Christians aren't exempt to these hard circumstances or these hard providences. No matter what it might be in life, there are seasons of life that are, are difficult for the believer. Uh, and, and, and even it would be right, wouldn't it, for this woman, uh, not in anger to question God's will, but, but to also seek to understand what the Lord is accomplishing uh, through this hard circumstance, this hard season of, of life, this child that was promised to her six to eight years ago by the very prophet of the Lord has now suddenly been taken away. And we know something of that of that pressure. We know something of that suffering, that that sorrow, because we have lost loved ones. We have gone through hard seasons of life where things, it seems, have been been snatched out from under us. 
And it's right and it's good for us to seek the Lord in those times of sorrow. And that's exactly what we see the woman doing here, this mom doing here, as she now takes, in verse 21, she takes her child, she goes and lays him on the bed that she has prepared for Elisha, she shuts the door behind her, and she now goes out. Now something very kind of particular happens here in verse 22. But before we even get into this uh, calling of her husband and, and saying to her, I must go to Elisha, the, the man of God, and I will come back again. And we have that great response from her out of faith, all is well. We must understand something about death. We must understand something about death in and of itself. And so if you'll take your finger and place it there in 2 Kings 4, and flip over with me to John chapter 11. Of course, this is a well-known text before us. It's Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We see there in verses 1 through 4, let me read it for you. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he who you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, of course, if you know the story, we, we read especially verse 4 and we say, well, Jesus, this illness does lead to death, doesn't it? Lazarus, whom you love, who is a dear friend to you, he is sick and then he ultimately dies. And Jesus then waits four days to return to the tomb of Lazarus, of course, to raise him from the dead. Jesus doesn't go right away. He doesn't go right away so that Lazarus might die. And that was very troubling to Christ's disciples as well to Mary and Martha. If you'll jump down to verse 11 of John chapter 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of this death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now, what is disconcerting here for the disciples is not only are they confused about what Jesus is saying, but they really don't understand what death is for the Christian. What death is for the Christian is a temporary sleep. Physical death for believers is a sleep from which they will one day wake up on the day of resurrection from the dead. And Jesus, to show His power... Jesus to show the wisdom of God's purposes. Jesus so that His name might be glorified. Jesus so that people might believe. 
waits to return to the grave of Lazarus. It's not that Jesus did not know that he would raise Lazarus from the dead, but Jesus is not limited in his power. He could have stopped Lazarus from dying, but he, but he allows this hard circumstance. He allows the death of Lazarus, it says here, so that others might believe as he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, if you'll flip back to 2 Kings chapter 4, some parallels are, are being experienced here for us. Because could not Elisha, by the power of God, stop this young boy from dying? Yes. Could not Elisha, being the prophet of the Lord, knowing the ways of the Lord, know in which the reason and why this know the reason in which this woman has come to him? Yes. And yet he says it's been hidden, hidden from him by God. And so what is happening here in this story for this woman who has lost her son? It's the same reason in which Lazarus dies and is resurrected again. So that faith might be encouraged. So that faith might be experienced. So the name of the Lord might be glorified. That is instrumental to our understanding as we come to hard circumstances. In our text, of course, this hard circumstance is death. And even through death itself, the Lord is exclaiming that He will be honored, that He will be glorified, and that the believer's faith will be strengthened. It's just what is said in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 35. That great hall of faith text. And what more shall I say? It reads, For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth, Also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became brave in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life. Again, And there it is. That's the declaration of this woman's faith. A woman's faith who not only in verse 22 drives her, drives her to the man of God. Interestingly enough, that is another lesson for us to learn. In hard circumstances, we cannot look to anyone else in this world. We must look to God and what He says in His Word. You notice the woman does not turn to her husband. Her husband will not have the answer. Her husband will not have the answer and why her child is dead. What will have the answer? The prophet of the Lord. What will have the answer for us today? It will be the word of the Lord. And so he says, why are you going to him? It's not a festival or a new moon. It's not the Sabbath day where we gather for worship. And she simply says, in faith, all is well. And that's exactly how she responds to Elisha as well. In verse 26, as they see the Shunammite woman, this mother, coming to Elisha and Gehazi, the servant, 
He, out of much affection, because He loves her, He has a relationship with her. Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And she answered, all is well. The second thing I want you to notice here is that the proper response of faith in the midst of calamity, in the midst of hard circumstances, is simply, all is well. The woman very quickly goes to the man of God, Elisha, so that she might rightly understand what is taking place here. And yet, even before she receives an answer, she knows that all is well in the sovereign hand of her God. Isn't that remarkable? Yes, she has faith. Yes, her child will be raised again. But we know that the story doesn't always end with a resurrection, does it? Hard circumstances just seemingly get harder. Loved ones die. Children die. Things are ripped from, uh, from under our feet, and it seems as if there is no hope in circumstances of life. And yet the believer out of faith will always say, all is well. That is a lesson that we need to learn here in verses 22 through 26. If you remember the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, you might know that that hymn was written by Horatio Spafford. And I know I've used this illustration before. But if you don't know the story of Horatio Spafford as he writes that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, it's, it's very remarkable. It, it, it's humbling that you, you would know a man who loses all three of his children in a terrible shipwreck. His wife responds to him, I am alive, but I am alone. Meaning your three daughters are gone. And so he begins to set sail across the Atlantic so that he might be with his wife. And, and as they pass the place of the shipwreck, the captain calls out to him and says, this is the place. And the bodies of your daughters are right under you. And he begins to write, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I mean, that is a remarkable response to travesty within the life of the believer, and yet that is the response that we see of this believing woman. All is well. And as she clings to the feet of Elisha here in verses 27 through 34, in verses 27 through 34, Elisha must pray and use the right means to minister to this dead young boy. Verse 27, Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away, but Elisha said, Leave her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me, and has not told me what is wrong. So she said, Did I ask a son from my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? And immediately Elisha knows what is happening. And so he begins to send Gehazi and the staff, his own staff, to the boy. But you notice that the woman says, this is not the word of God. Gehazi is just a servant. She wants the very mouthpiece of the Lord. She wants the prophet. 
And in the midst of calamity, do you have that same desire to be close to the Word of God? Not only must it be the first place in which we turn quickly in the matter of distress and hard circumstances, but it, but it must also be the place where we want to be near. We cannot be without. And so Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, says she did not believe in Gehazi nor in Elisha's staff. And herein, she is a wise woman because she believes in the very words of the Almighty God. And so when Elisha finally comes into the room that this woman has made for him, he sees the child dead there on his bed, and he shuts the door behind the two of them, and there he begins to pray. There he begins to pray. Verse 33. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and he prayed to the Lord. And then in verse 34, we have this kind of strange picture of the means in which Elisha carries out to bring this young boy back to life. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Here it is that you, you see very clearly as breath in the Old Testament is, is very much a picture of the Holy Spirit that Elisha understands the means in which this boy will come to life again. It will be through the power of the Spirit. It will be the power of the Spirit. And so as Elisha breathes, it is a, a, a you know, a, a signifier of his reliance upon the Spirit of God that the Lord must breathe life into the, into the lungs of this, of this young boy. And also at the very same time, as he says, eyes and hands, as he stretches his whole body across the body of this child, it has something to understand here that that there is a discipleship going on as well. Not only is this a physical death-to-life experience, but it should be symbolic to us as well. That the sinner is dead in his trespasses and sins, and he needs the breath of the Holy Spirit to breathe life into his lungs, and then he needs the Word of God to now be his hands and his eyes and his feet so that he might know how to walk in the ways of, of holiness and this newness of life. It's regeneration and discipleship, isn't it? It's justification and sanctification. Not only is there new life, but there is a way in which to walk in this new, in this new life. And that's what is being signified here, symbolized here before us. But also you see, I know I'm running short on time here, but you also see in verse 35, Then he, talking about Elisha, got up again and walked once back and forth in the house, and he went up and stretched himself upon him, meaning that Elisha is doing the same actions twice. He's praying. He's laying across the young boy. He's putting his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hand, his mouth upon his mouth, so that their breath might be felt upon the lips. And then it's here that the child grows from warm to sneezing seven times. And I think there's 
Something important about that. You understand that that's the number of completion. And so the life in this child is now new. It's been regenerated. It's been given back to him. He is fully alive. He was fully dead, but now he is fully alive. He was truly dead, and now is truly alive. And again, that is parallel to our Christian experience. That we were fully dead in our sins and our trespasses, Ephesians 2 says. But through Christ, but God being rich in mercy towards us as His people has made us alive again in Christ Jesus. Fully alive. New creations. And so we must understand, and this is the fourth and final thing that we see in verses 35-38. through 38, That we must by faith glory in Christ who has the power to raise the dead. Yes, He has the power to raise the literal dead as we see in this story. But we also see that the Lord God Almighty and Jesus Christ has the power to answer prayers and has the power to regenerate believers. Spurgeon says again, see the power of prayer. The very gates of death are made to open when Elisha, a man of like passions with ourselves, bows before the Lord in prayer. Learn a lesson from the prophet and his attitude towards this dead child. For often, God is pleased to give spiritual life through the power of human sympathy. When we put ourselves into the condition of the sinner, hope for him, pray for him, agonize with him in broken-hearted sympathy on his account so that you might put yourself as far as we can into his place because God often makes us the instruments by which his spirit quickens the dead in sin. So not only do we see a, a God who can raise the dead with the future hope that he will raise all those who are dead in Christ, make them alive again. For death, because of Jesus Christ, has no victory over the believer. It has no sting over God's people, but also be encouraged by this believer. Not only do we have a hope in the future glories of Christ, but we can experience His glory even now as there is power in the prayers of the people. And there is salvation that belongs to the Lord even now as He continues to make spiritually dead men and women and children alive together with Him in the Gospel. Let us by faith and by prayer now seek Him. Asking, Father in heaven, through Jesus Christ our Lord, would you give us a real desire, a real longing for the future hope that we have in the resurrection of the dead. For we long to be with you in our glorified bodies. But also, Father, let us know that you are not only working in our future, but that you are working in our present. That as we turn to you in faith, you have given us a right to enter into the throne of mercy knowing that there is success, real gospel success to be experienced as you not only hear our prayers, but you answer them in your will's way and your will's time. There's great power in prayer, and so let us remember that. And let us know, O Lord, that you are drawing men, women, and children unto yourself. You are making dead men, women, and children alive together 
with Christ so that they might experience this new created life, this spiritual life that is given to us in abundance. Lord, make us a people of Your Word as the woman does here in our text in the midst of hard circumstances, in the midst of lost loved ones, when it feels like the world has dealt us a hand that we do not know what to do with. Let us be quick to turn to Your Word. And let us always be near to it. For this is the life-sustaining, life-giving Word that speaks to every situation and circumstance that our hearts can ever experience. And You show us, Lord, Your ways and Your glory and Your promises. And so as the woman clings to the promises of God, as she has faith in the blessings that the Lord has given her and says, all is well because my God reigns, let that be the posture of our heart as well. And in our times and seasons of doubt and frustration and anxiety, let us return to Your Word so that we might be reminded that You work all things out for the glory of Your name and the good of Your people. We pray that we might see it, experience it, and rejoice in it. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, it's good for us to uh, sing in response to uh, God's Word. And so if you'll take those hymn books out one last time... and.